for listening to this message from the Altar Fellowship. All right. Thank you. You can be seated. Thank you so much. Well, thank especially you, Logan. I appreciate it. <laughs> wow. You know, I might be biased, but man, I love this church. I, uh, every time I go to another church, no matter how much I love that church, I think it's no place like home. Um, I can't thank you all enough for being here, for being a part of this thing. Uh, what God is doing here. I get it that it might feel boring a lot of the time. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, for me and the staff, it might feel stressful and overwhelming a lot of the time. But what God is doing here is significant. And and if we will stay the course, sooner or later, there will be a day that we say over and over and over again, it was all worth it. Um, and, uh, And so those of you, I know many of you have relocated, sold homes, Moved your families across the, the country. I'm telling you that, that uh, it was worth it. You may not see it yet, but it was worth it. And, you, and you're going to uncover all the reasons it was worth it for years and years to come, for generations and generations. And, um, you know, this, uh, this last couple weeks, this last few weeks, we have been teaching on uh, marriage. We've been doing this Kingdom Covenant series. And, uh, and I had a plan for what I was going to speak uh, about this week. Since the beginning, I had the whole thing planned out. And uh, how many of you know that God loves ruining your plans? <laughs> he does. <laughs> In fact, that's probably what brought a whole bunch of you here to Johnson City. Is God ruined your plans. And, um, and, and listen, I've been around the block uh, enough times to know that when God ruins my plans, it's because his plan is way better than mine. And so just this last week, uh, and and I'd like to continue with this marriage series, and I I think this actually may be more closely tied to the marriage series than I I initially thought. But on on Friday night, the Spirit of the Lord began to whisper to me about a word that has been burning in me like a fire shut up in my bones all weekend. And I just can't get past it. I sat down this morning to write down uh, some notes for the message that I had been hoping to preach and, uh, and it was like the presence of God came into my office and said, you better not blow this, man. Um, and, so, uh, and so here's, he's twisted my arm. And so we're, we're going to go in uh, this morning into a word that I believe that is a, a timely word for our house, where we stand right now, that I think is going to help propel us into where we are going. I think this is going to be a significant uh, and, and marking, my, my hope and prayer has been that this would be a significant and marking morning for us, a a defining moment in the development of the culture of the kingdom that we're establishing and expressing here. You know, this morning, actually, after our our corporate prayer, before I had told anybody that I'd planned to switch gears from my initial uh, initial strategy, Pastor Ian came to me and he said, man, as you were praying, uh, the, the Lord laid Jeremiah 23, verse 29 on my heart that says, is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. This is what the Lord says about his word, the word that proceeds from his mouth. He says, is is not my word like a fire and like a hammer that breaks a rock into pieces? This this is, um, is, I I think, for us a, a critical understanding to recognize that the breakthrough we're looking for is going to come by way of the word of God at work, active and alive in us. What it means, what this verse communicates to me is that when God communicates his heart, it comes, it carries with it the grace for, for breakthrough against anything that would threaten to stifle the communication of God's heart. And so my posture this morning is simply to say, God, all I want is your word for this house. I had my plans, but I'd prefer your word, Right. I had my idea and my imaginations, but I would prefer your word. And so let's set up camp in the word of God this morning. Can we do that? Now, uh, I'm going to be teaching out of John chapter 2. And um, I'm going to be teaching out of John chapter 2. And in John chapter 2, we read about the first public miracle that Jesus ever did. Uh, this is when he turns water into wine at the wedding at Cana. And, and actually, I think there is for us a a word regarding the greater context of this story within where we are at as a family 
currently, and that is this, that Jesus could have done his first public miracle anywhere. It could have been a resurrection at a funeral, right? He could have gone down and, uh, uh, to the leper colony and started healing lepers. He could have waited until there was a woman caught in adultery and you know, miraculously saved and delivered her. He could have found a blind man on the side of the road. He could have gone to the gate called Beautiful. I have a feeling there was a lame man sitting there waiting for someone to come by and heal him. And he didn't do any of those things. Jesus chose, of all places, a wedding at which to demonstrate his, his glory, to manifest his glory, as John 2 says it, for the first time ever. And I think that this communicates something of the heart of God for marriage. That, that, that the second person of the Godhead would in the sovereignty of God decide to demonstrate his glory publicly for the first time ever at a wedding is I think in itself a revelation about God's heart toward marriage. That God would say, of all the things people do, this is the thing I value most. This is the thing I want to honor and esteem the most. This is the thing that I want to draw people's attention to. God says, I'm going to demonstrate my glory in the first place I'm going to do it is at a wedding because I want people to pay attention to weddings. I want people to pay attention to, to, to marriage. I want people to pay attention to covenantal love. You know, one of the points that I had intended to make this morning initially was this, that, that it is a fatal mistake for us to fail to honor what God has called holy. For us to consider common what God considers sacred is a fatal mistake. And I want you to, to understand that in John chapter 2, God communicates to us that he considers marriage sacred. And far too many of us approach our marriages like they're no big deal. We approach our spouse like they're no big deal. We approach the relationship like the stakes aren't very high. Like the results of this marriage don't really matter. We consider, we speak about, we identify, we view, and we posture ourselves toward marriage like marriage is common, but God has called it sacred. God has ordained it. And if you've been here at all for the last few weeks, you have heard us teach out of Ephesians chapter five that Yahweh has ordained marriage as a, a witness in the earth, a physical demonstration of the love that God has for his people and the love that his people have for him. Marriage is fundamentally prophetic. And for us to disdain marriage, for us to dishonor marriage, for us to simply fail to revere marriage appropriately is I think for us to insult the God that established that institution in the earth. Amen? Amen, Sheila and Chris. Fresh back from their honeymoon. It's good to see y'all. Congratulations. Chris, you're glowing, man. I love Ladies glow when they get married. Men glow when they get, or ladies glow when they get pregnant. Men glow at other times. <laughs> Pray about it. <laughs> That's right. So, uh, so in John chapter two, Jesus turns water into wine at a, a wedding in Cana of Galilee. I'll, we'll just read through and, and we'll draw some things out. It's the, as the spirit leads, it says on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. You know, I think it, I think it's awesome in verse two that John goes out of his way to explain that Jesus was invited to this wedding. Um, maybe for fear that you would think Jesus just showed up to some random wedding and started throwing around miracles. I love that John goes out of his way, spends a whole entire verse explaining, now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. I, I, and as, as obvious as it seems, it feels like that would go without saying, but I, I think that maybe the reason that John felt it important to include that part of insight into the context of the story is, is so that we could understand that Jesus tends to move where Jesus is invited to move. That, that the power of God tends to be put on display where the power of God is welcome to be put on display. And now this again, it seems like it should go without saying, and yet most of the counsel I give people is, is trying to 
is, is my desperate attempt to convince them to invite the power of God to move in, in a particular area of their life. Here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. I, I meet with people all the time. I've, I've met with people many times through the years who are in a financial crisis. And I'll ask them, well, do you tithe? Are you honoring God with your finances? And they'll say, well, no. You know, I was hoping to get the raise first or the promotion first or find the new job first or buy the new car first. And it's like, listen, if, if you, you, can't, you can't with one hand hold God at a distance from your finances and then on the other hand, invite God to come into your finances. If God's gonna come into your finances, you're going to have to do your finances the, God, the way that God has called you to do your finances. It's like people coming to me asking me to pray for their marriage while they're secretly looking at pornography at home. You're, you're undermining the ability of, of the, the, the person or the presence of Jesus to be able to bring the breakthrough you, you say you're asking for. I want you to understand that Jesus tends to move where Jesus is invited to move. And so I want to challenge you as, as, a, as a family, if there are places in your life where you're still experiencing captivity or lack or insufficiency, if you are still in less than Jesus died for you to inherit, I want to challenge you to ask yourself, is there something about the way that I view this part of my life that is in itself holding him at arm's length? Have I actually invited Jesus into this aspect of my life? Is Jesus really the Lord of my finances? Is he really the Lord of my marriage? Is he really the Lord of my thought life? Is he really the Lord of my physical reality? Am I, have I actually surrendered this part of my being to him? Because if not, then my asking for his help in a particular area might just be hollow words if my actions are speaking something different entirely. And so I think John communicates this beautifully when he says, now Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Jesus didn't come in uninvited. He was welcomed. He was invited. He was wanted there. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What does your concern have to do with me? This is, I think, an important question. This is an important question because if, if Mary or the people at this wedding were anything like uh, many of the modern Christians that we know in, in the Western world, what they would have done is they would have run out of wine and then they would have said, hey, you know what? God has ordained for us to run out of wine. I guess, uh, I guess the Lord just wants us to, to drink water from here on out, right? They would have said, you know what? God is, uh, is teaching us about enduring through hardship. And so we've run out of wine and God's going to use it to teach us a lesson. Uh, you know, they would, they would uh, develop for themselves a theology that accommodates for the, the lack of wine. You know, the, some, maybe somebody would say, hey, God called us to only have enough wine for the first uh, little bit of this wedding. And the fact that we didn't have enough wine to last through the whole wedding, you know what? That was God's will. That's, that's exactly what God wanted. And if you have a problem with it, then maybe you should take it up with God. What happens is that, that, that we, like people all throughout history, we tend to develop for ourselves theologies that accommodate our faithlessness. What happened is that someone saw a problem and they brought their problem to Jesus. Isn't that a revolutionary concept? How many of us have been raised in churches where we see a problem and we shrug our shoulders and just assume, well, it must be God's will? We have a wrong view of the sovereignty of God that causes us to take things like divorce, addiction, depression, cancer, and we just shrug our shoulders and say, well, you know, I, I guess it's just God's will. It's just my cross to bear. You know, God's going to use it to teach me a lesson. Here's the thing. God absolutely can redeem any situation. He can take the bad and make it good. He can cause all things to work together for your good. Right, If you will love him and, and be called according to his purpose. We absolutely affirm that God can redeem even the bad situations. But here's the problem. God can make the storm serve you. He certainly can. But he can also calm the storm altogether. God can teach you lots of lessons through cancer. But he can also heal cancer. Right? God can teach you patience and humility through a, a, a prolonged season of depression, but he can also deliver you from depression. Friends, I, far too often, 
we allow ourselves to fall into deception as a result of a, an eagerness to theologically accommodate lack or brokenness or insufficiency. Can I tell you what God wants from his people? What God wants from his people is to know and to do his will. And so you've got to ask yourself, does God want you to have cancer? Oh, let's ask this question. Okay, let's make it easier. Uh, let's ask this question. Is there cancer in heaven? No. Yeah, easy, right? What was the, the prayer that Jesus prayed when his disciples asked him, how should we pray? Right? Father, let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We've been talking for ages now about the, the, the kingdom, not as a place, but as a culture. And if the culture of the kingdom to which we are going is, is not a culture that, or, or is not an atmosphere that is conducive to the existence of cancer, then, then what we should be after right here and right now is a culture, an environment that is not conducive to the existence of cancer or depression or addiction or divorce or rebellion, right? What God is, what God is doing in us is establishing an eternal culture. We are the first fruits of the kingdom that is to come. We are the first fruits of the kingdom that is to come. And as the first fruits of the kingdom that is to come, we've got to determine in our heart that we will not agree with anything that disagrees with the kingdom. Now, I guess we should ask, does that mean that um, if you have cancer, you're in sin? No, I think it, it means that if you, you have cancer, you're in the world. Right? We, we, we still live in a dysfunctional world. However, the reason that God puts his glory on people that still live in a dysfunctional world is so that the dysfunction of this world can be set on a collision course with people that will manifest his glory and set the dysfunction right. The reason that you run out of wine is because there's a son at the wedding that carries a, the glory that is necessary to set this wrong right. The reason that God and his sovereignty would allow suffering in the world is because God in his mercy has released sons into the earth that have the capacity to make suffering into rejoicing. And the reason that so many of us are so eager to develop theologies that accommodate for lack or for less than what Jesus died for is because we simply don't believe that God has put on us an anointing that is able to break the yoke of bondage on our generation. Friends, we have, to, we, have to, we have to view ourselves rightly. We have to view ourselves rightly. If we're going to take the cross seriously, we've got to graduate from being just a bunch of worthless sinners saved by grace and recognize that what God says is that you are a son, a redeemed heir. Someone indwelt and empowered by the, the living spirit of God and sent into the earth on a mission to advance his kingdom. Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Why would you bring this to me? Why would you bring this to me? Do you want to know why? Because he can fix it. I want to give you permission this morning to never settle. Listen, it's not, we as, as church leaders in the last several generations in this nation, we've done a phenomenal job teaching Christians to endure storms. We've done an abysmal job teaching Christians to calm them. I give you permission this morning to never settle, to never settle for less than everything Jesus died for you to have in your marriage, in the lives of your children, in your own heart, in your private life. Friends, we have a, we have a promise. We have a promise that his grace would be sufficient for us. We have a promise that if we will submit to God in James 4, if we'll submit to God and resist the devil, that he will flee from us. You do not have to live under the weight of torment from the enemy for the rest of your life. That is not your inheritance, friend. I'm, listen, I'm sorry that, that you, if you're, the way you were raised is anything like the way I was raised. You were raised in church 
and, and taught that it was, it was sin to demand more from your life and that what God wanted from you was indifference or apathy. And we just call it faith. Well, you know, it is what it is. I'll just take it on the chin and this is just the cards I was dealt, just my cross to bear. God's gonna teach me some lessons and eventually I'll die and get out of here. That is not the message of the kingdom. That is not the message of Jesus. The message of Jesus, the heart cry of Christ was and is today, Father, let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The reason Mary brings this to him, what does this concern have to do with him, is, is that he can fix it. Listen, my, come on, my prayer, let's, let's refuse to settle. My prayer for this house is that there would never be another miscarriage for a woman in this, in this house. I'm tired of this, man. I'm tired of this, man. There are too many, there are too many couples, man, in this house that I know and love and have walked with through highs and lows and thick and thin who have had to suffer from this thing. Listen, if, if, if you or your spouse has had a miscarriage, would you stand? We're going to, let's go to war right now. Come on, stand. It, recently, if it's been a long time ago, come on. If this is a part of your story, will you stand right now in the gap for people that are uh, that are facing this or they're walking through this right now. Everybody else, I want you to stretch your hand toward these couples and understand that God has, has blessed them, he's been faithful to them, and he's gonna continue to bless and be faithful to them. Yahweh, right now, we declare life and not death. God, right now, in Jesus' name, we declare life and not death. Fruitfulness, multiplication. Yahweh, would you continue? Even right now, would you heal what was broken in the past? Whether it's in the area of faith or, or an emotional brokenness or even a physical dysfunction that led to a miscarriage, I declare healing right now. I declare multiplication right now. Fruitfulness right now. Father, we, we stand on your word that your desire is for us to be fruitful and to multiply. And so God, we, we call into existence right now, right order, right order in the wombs of the women in this house. God, we, we contend right now and say it is your inheritance. It is our inheritance to see you dancing with that child in your arms. Father, I thank you that you can make even bad things good. And so we stand in faith. We stand in faith. We stand in faith right now, God, that you are able to do the impossible, that you are able to do all things, and that because you are able to do all things, if we put our trust in you, you will never let us down. Father, thank you for being faithful. And so we bring this to you because you can fix it. We declare these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Come on, thank you. Thank you. Those of you that stood, I appreciate your courage, man. It's not okay. This is, it's not okay. We have, we have to be willing. We have to be willing as a family to, to say that sucks. Right? My, when my dad died of cancer, when I was eight, the message that I got from everybody else was, you know, well, you know, God's going to teach you some lessons through it. And the Lord works in mysterious ways. And uh, sorry, buddy, you're going to be all right. You know, nobody sat me down and said, man, that blows that your dad died. I'm sorry. That is not cool. That's wrong. And, and it's because as Christians, we've been trained to just sort of pretend like, well, everything is, is okay and it's going to be all right in the end. Listen, man, at some point, somebody, I think Mary gives us a great roadmap here. At some point, somebody has to say, this is not okay. Jesus, fix it. Right? This is not okay. Jesus, help. Can I, if you don't leave here with anything else, would it, I, my hope is that it would be a determination in your heart to say, this is not okay. Jesus, help. What does your concern have to do with me? He says, my hour has not yet come. Now, this is interesting because talking about the hour that is to come, Jesus invokes some sort of religious language. He begins to speak about what we would call the, the sovereignty of God. That God in his sovereignty, in his omnipotence has established, has predetermined a moment for the revealing of the glory, the majesty of Jesus. He is going to step into his, uh, into his public ministry at some point and he pretty explicitly says in John 
2, verse 4, this is not the time. The Father has ordained a time, and this is not that time. And, uh, and, And Mary, being a true mother, completely ignores that. <laughs> what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother doesn't even talk to him anymore. <laughs> she just turns away from him and uh, says to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. In fact, these are the last words recorded in scripture that Mary spoke, uh, which I think is really profound. You know, there, there's a, a, a sect on the fringes of Orthodox Christianity called the Catholic Church. Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, who, who venerate Mary like she's a, a, a divine. But Mary's last piece of advice to the world is in John 2, verse 4. It says, whatever he says to you, do it. And so uh, if we're going to honor Mary, I think we should honor Mary by doing what she said, and that is by following Jesus with everything we have, right? Yeah. Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, verse six says, now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was now made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. Verse 11 says, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, uh, to give you a little bit of context here, this is, I think, really interesting. So they had been drinking for hours, presumably, uh, presumably hours, quite possibly days. They'd been drinking the wine that they had on hand. They brought this wine in for this this wedding and and weddings could last for several days. And so they began drinking the wine. They run out of wine and the mother of Jesus finds him and she says, they they have no wine. What does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. She turns to the servants and says, whatever he says to you, do that. And uh, it says, now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. So conservatively, 120 gallons of, uh, of water could have fit into these containers. However, they had already been drinking for hours, possibly days, which means that if they had run out of wine, there were already dozens, maybe hundreds of empty wine jars laying around this party. The smart thing to do would have been to just fill those up with water. There's, there's empty containers everywhere. They've already been drinking. And Jesus doesn't just say, well, hey, just refill those, the same containers you already used for wine, fill those with water. I'm going to turn that into wine. No, he points to these six pots specifically. These six water pots that John explains are Water pots made of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Now this is really interesting to me because this is not the most efficient way to do this. Dozens, maybe hundreds of empty jars that Jesus could have said, hey, fill those up with water, but he didn't. He specifically points out to these six water pots made of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews. And he says, I want you to fill those with water. So they do. They fill them up to the water. And Jesus turns all of the water in all of the pots into wine. Now this is especially interesting considering in the context in which Jesus was living in the Jewish world at the time, washing yourself upon entry into this particular type of feast would have been a religious mandate. It would have been part of the law of God that when they come into this kind of banquet, they would have had to wash their hands and their face Uh, And they would use these water pots that were set there to do so. And so when Jesus turns the water in these pots into wine, he makes it impossible for anyone to continue to wash themselves anymore. And if there's one thing that I have learned in in my time with the Lord, uh, in, in studying and exploring the supernatural, it's that God never does a miracle for the sake of a miracle. 
when God does a miracle, God does a miracle because of the message that he can attach to that miracle. It's never about the miracle. It's always about the message. And so what is the message? Like I said, Jesus could have raised a dead person. He could have healed a sick person. He could have opened blind eyes or given strength to lame uh, legs. And yet uh, he didn't do any of that. What he did, what he did was he turned water into wine, but it wasn't just any water and it wasn't just any wine. He turned water that was specifically put there for religious and ceremonial self-cleansing and he said, I'm going to turn that water into wine. Do you want to know what he did in that moment? What he communicated in that moment? What is the message? The message is the time for washing yourself is over. And the time for celebrating me has come. He turns a substance primarily used for washing into a substance primarily used for celebrating. And I think if I could introduce the concept of kingdom living with one picture, it would be that. What Jesus is doing in this moment is the same thing that Jesus is doing in your life right now. And he's declaring that the time for washing is over and the time for celebrating has come. Jesus, when he comes on the scene, he becomes the center of attention. Religious monotony, right? Mindless religious activity comes to a screeching halt. Jesus makes it impossible. Jesus makes it impossible for people to continue washing themselves. Despite our best efforts, this is the beautiful thing about the mercy and the love of God. Despite our best efforts as even a modern church to wash ourselves clean enough to win God's approval, he continually turns that water into wine. He continually says, hey, how about instead of more software on your computer, why don't you just begin to celebrate the fact that I love you and I'm here? How about, right, maybe instead of, instead of another accountability buddy and another counseling session with the pastor and, you know, another YouTube video about how to get free from this issue, right? What if you just get lost in love with me? What if you get so filled with the, the revelation of the fact that I have come on the scene in your life that everything else simply loses its grip? Come on. He's, he's taking us from, a seat, from, from an age of washing into an age of celebrating. The kingdom is at its, most, at its most fundamental level, the celebration of the finished work of the cross. Life in the kingdom is at its most fundamental level, the celebration of the finished work of the cross. Everything we do as believers is not about getting our act together. What we do as believers is, is respond to the goodness of God. I heard somebody say recently that, that the primary role of a spiritual father is to give permission for his sons and daughters to, uh, uh, to be able to express gratitude at the work of God in their life. That so many of us have been raised in a church where God could, set you, could bring you back from the brink of death and you have to sit down in church like it's a funeral on Sundays. Right? you got to just think about it. I'm in deep contemplation, brother. God has been good to me, right? Listen, if, if it's like, this is what I love about David. It's that God gives him victory over a giant, and he cuts the giant's head off and carries it back to town to show everybody. What? Listen, I don't, I don't care what culture in, in human history you're looking at. Carrying a severed head into town is generally frowned upon. Right? But this is what, this is what, these are the kind of people that God chooses, are people that aren't going to be concerned with, uh, that aren't going to be concerned with the opinions of other people. They're not going to be concerned with demonstrating piety that'll be impressive or admirable. They're not concerned with their own nobility or dignity. What they're concerned with is responding to the goodness of God. What it means, what it means to live as a kingdom person. If we're going to be ambassadors of the culture of the kingdom, what it means for us is that we would be constantly in a posture of celebration, that everything we do would be in response to the revelation of his goodness and his kindness toward us. So Jesus renders it impossible for anyone to continue washing themselves. And he says, how about you quit washing yourself and start celebrating me? That's the invitation. Why don't you quit washing yourself and start celebrating me? And if you'll do that, friends, you'll find that someday you'll look back and the sin that you were so desperately trying to get off you has simply left. Fill the water pots with water, he says in verse 7. They filled them up to the brim. He said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast... 
when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. Can I release a prophetic word to you that's not really that prophetic? You don't have to be prophetic to get this word. What is to come is better than what has passed. Listen, th- these last two, two and a half years that we've been running this church has, have been the greatest two and a half years of my entire life. And it only makes me more excited about what is ahead because I, because I know that we've been invited into a paradigm of, of perpetual increase, right? There will be no end to the increase of his kingdom and his peace. We've been called to go from glory to glory to glory and from faith to faith. And so what we've experienced, what we have experienced is not even fit to be compared to what is about to come. This is the beautiful thing about the kingdom is that it always gets better. This is the beautiful thing about life in the kingdom is that it always gets better. And since we've been on marriage, let me just, let me say it like this. Um, The reason you should stay with your spouse is because the years that you have ahead are better than the years that you have behind. If you're at your wit's end, feeling like we don't get along anymore, we've fallen out of love, we don't connect, there's no intimacy, there's... I just, uh, I, you know, I've, I've, I've exhausted every trick or tactic I can think of. There's no way that we could redeem this marriage. I'm telling you that what is ahead far outweighs what is behind. And that all divorce will do is, will, uh, uh, is, is it will ruin any opportunity you, you could possibly have to experience the glory God has prepared for the latter years of your marriage. Amen. Amen. You're just, all you're going to do is miss the opportunity to see it get better. And it's going to get better. I'm telling you, it's going to get better. Verse 11 says, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. I have a problem with this verse. My problem with this verse is that for years in ministry, I taught That God's sovereignty means that God will do what God will do. And our actions and decisions have no effect on that. God saves who he saves. God condemns who he condemns. He heals who he heals. And all we can do is learn to trust that, that he knows what he's doing. Here's my problem with that. In John 2 verse 4. Jesus says, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Seven verses later, in John 2, verse 11, we read, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Something changed over the course of those seven verses. Something changed. Jesus said, In sovereignty, God has preordained a moment for me to manifest my glory, and this is not that moment. Seven verses later, This beginning of signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And so what was it your time? Was it your hour or was it not your hour, Jesus? Something changed between verse 4 and verse 11. Something significant changed between verse 4 and verse 11 that moved God's hand in a way and at a time in which God had not originally planned to move. And so we've got to ask ourselves, what happened between verse 4 and verse 11? What happened between my hour has not yet come and Jesus manifested his glory? Can I tell you what happened? I asked this question for years and I wrestled with this. And I thought, well, maybe, 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 man, it's, maybe Jesus said it's not my hour, but what he meant was, you know, not right now, but it's about to be in, in two or three minutes, right? It's, it's very close, <laughs> But I think something changed. What happens in verse four, Jesus says, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. In the very next verse, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Do you wanna know what happened between my hour has not yet come and Jesus manifested his glory? What happens between verse four and verse 11 is that Jesus found a group of people willing to do whatever he said. You wanna know what moved the hand of and touch the heart of God is that Jesus found a company of people willing to do whatever he said. 
without hesitation, without argument, without compromise. A group of people that would look at Jesus and say, where you lead, we will follow. What you say, we will do. Your word is our purpose. If you give us direction, we'll, we'll give everything we got to follow in that direction. Do you want to know what moved God's hand and touched God's heart? Is that he found a company of people willing to do whatever Jesus said. And this, this is why for the last three days, this word has been burning on my heart. Because, because if we are ever anything, we must be a company of people willing to do whatever Jesus said. A company of people who without compromise, who without hesitation, who without argument, and without exception, will look to Jesus and say, where you lead, we will follow. What you say, we will do. Because the eyes of the Lord still today are searching the earth, looking for those he might show himself strong on behalf of. And the people that God's power goes to work for are the people who fix their eyes on Jesus and who lay their hearts at his feet. We say, Lord, if, if I am never anything, I will be obedient to you. If I am never anything else, I will be obedient to you. If I never make a million dollars, if I never build the house of my dreams, if I, if I never start the, the ministry or the business, if I am never anything else, I will be obedient to you. And if this is the posture of our hearts, friends, I'm telling you, we will move the hand of God. We will see the heart of God poured out in our lives, in our families, in our city, in our church, in our generation. We will see God's glory put on display. Not because we prayed and fasted hard enough, not because I preached good enough, not because we got a good enough marketing budget, but because God found a company of people. God found a company of people gripped with the beauty of Jesus and fully surrendered to his leadership. That is who we will be. That is who we will be. Listen, will you stand this morning? I, I want to just, just pray over you today. Listen, I want you, to, I want you to, to hear me when I say this. Everything's going to be okay. We are, my wife and I were talking about just how relentless, how relentless this thing is. It's just, it's just a constant stream of fear, anger, division, insecurity. It's a constant stream of bad news. I want you to hear me when I say that Jesus is on the throne today. Jesus is on the throne today. And he's able not just to give you the strength to endure the storm. He's able to calm the storm. He's able not just to give you the grace to attend a wedding that doesn't have any wine at it. He's able to turn water into wine. To invite you into a paradigm where your life is no longer about cleaning up your act. But about celebrating his goodness his presence and his power that are at work in your life. Friends, I, I want to leave you with this invitation this morning. I believe that Yahweh is calling us as a family into a degree, a, a dimension of obedience, of radical obedience, unlike anything any of us have experienced before. This house has been marked by radical obedience, a dimension of obedience. It's called us, my, my family, you know, we went, we went first, but I recognize that our sacrifice wasn't greater than the sacrifice that many others have made to, to be here and to be a part of this movement. I, I see that. I celebrate that. I think it's a big deal. But, but we're going to be called out of our comfort zone, man. We're going to be called out of complacency, laziness, and self-centeredness. We're going to be called out of our arrogance. We're going to be called out of our mindless religious activity. We are like the servants at this wedding being called to break tradition. To change the rules. And to, at the 
at the invitation of Jesus to obey in a way that seems entirely counterproductive. Jesus, we need wine, not six jars full of water. But radical obedience. Radical obedience will always create an atmosphere conducive to the miraculous. And, uh, and so my challenge to you this morning is to again come to a place in your heart and in your mind when you can say, Jesus, genuinely, where you lead, I will follow. Even when it doesn't make sense. Even when it feels embarrassing. Even when it hurts. I'm going to say yes. The answer is yes to you. There is no hesitation in me. There is no compromise or complaining in me. Jesus, where you lead, I will follow. That's the end of the story. And if we will get to this place, if we will get to that place, I'm telling you, we're going to see more miracles. We're going to see more miracles. We're going to see more miracles, James Smith. People with serious medical conditions, you're going to be showing them houses and they're going to realize that for the first time in 20 years, their back doesn't hurt. Right? That the arthritis in their knees is gone. They can walk upstairs without pain for the first time as they're, as they're just walking through a house with James. The thing about having James show you a house is that uh, he looks at the house like he's going to move into it. You got to, he, he's so excited about everything. Man, look at this bathroom. He loves it. He's going to be running room to room in these houses and showing people and, and they're going to discover something, something about being in your presence has changed me. Right? Radical obedience. Radical obedience always creates an atmosphere that invites the miraculous. Hear me. Radical obedience always creates an atmosphere that invites the miraculous. I want to see, I want to see the miraculous, not, not for the sake of the miraculous. I want to see the miraculous because it is evidence that there is a company of people who have postured their hearts to be radically obedient to Jesus. That's what we're after. Right, Lucas? That's what we're after. Come on. Right, JD? Yeah, man. Don Nolan. <laughs> Remember when the doctors thought you had cancer? You don't. <laughs> Sorry, cancer. Jesus said no. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Friends, I... Uh, It is imperative that we never let ourselves play church. All, all the reason we are here is because we're done with that. We're done with faking it on Sunday mornings. It's time to take the mask off. It's time to, to lay our lives on the altar at the feet of Jesus and say, where you lead, we'll follow. That's all there is to it, man. This isn't about climbing a ladder. This isn't about playing a game. This isn't about performing. The thing about these servants, they changed history. They changed history. These servants changed history. And I couldn't tell you the name of a single one of them. None of them are famous, wealthy, influential, widely admired. They're unimportant and insignificant in every way. That's the goal. I want to be buried. I'd love for history to remember me as just one of a number of servants who looked at Jesus and said, whatever you say, that's what we'll do. I don't need to know my name or my face. But I'll tell you what, the greatest honor for me the greatest honor for me, man, is to be able to stand among a company of people who are willing to be radically obedient because we trust that our leader, our king, is faithful, and he is faithful. Amen. So, Yahweh, I, I speak right now over every, every heart and every home under the sound of my voice. I declare 
God, just a grace, a new grace for radical obedience. There's people that are going to hear this podcast and they're going to put their house on the market next week because they know they're supposed to be in Johnson City and they've been putting it off. Isn't that right, Shane? Amen. Come on. Yeah, we had to. <laughs> thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your conviction. Thank you for your leadership. God, thank you for your for your grace on our life that is so relentless, that is so relentless, it's so relentless that it continually invites us to step beyond ourselves and to step beyond our fears and our insecurities and to step into radical obedience. God, I thank you for the grace for radical obedience that's being released into every home. Under the sound of my voice, God, I declare that even today, that even today there would be people that confess sin they've kept secret for years. And they would say, man, more than I need to be impressive, I need to be honest. I need to be radically obedient to Jesus. God, I thank you for the privilege that it is to say yes to you. Thank you that we know that if we will follow you, you will lead us into what is right and good every time. And so we say collectively as a family, Jesus, whatever you say, that's what we'll do. We trust you and we love you. Lead us. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen. Y'all, blessings to you. Thank you so much for being here this morning. This is just the beginning. We're just getting started. Amen. And we, uh, we are looking forward. We're looking forward. The, the wine that we've had has been good, but we're looking forward to the good wine that is to come. Amen. Blessings to you. Thank you so much for being here. We will see you back here next week, Wednesday night at 6.30 and then next week at 10. Thank you for tuning in to this service from the Altar Fellowship. We pray that you were impacted powerfully by this message. If you have been personally affected by our ministry and you would like to partner with the Altar as we work to establish the Kingdom of Heaven, please visit our website at www.thealtar.org.